Welcome to Diseases in Dialogue. In this podcast, researchers from the Diseases of Modern Life project at the University of Oxford join experts from a range of fields to discuss some of the major questions surrounding the scientific, technological and medical developments that have defined the modern era. In this episode, we explore what it means to live in a networked age, an age that began with the emergence of the electric telegraph during the 19th century, and which has entered a new phase since the advent of the internet. Have the benefits of new means of communication been universal? To what extent is the internet built on the foundations of older technologies? Is the long-awaited global village still on the horizon? Hi, I'm Jean-Michel Johnston. I'm a researcher on the ERC-funded Diseases of Modern Life project at the University of Oxford, and I work on the history of the communications revolution in 19th century Europe, with a particular focus on the development of the electric telegraph. I'm Grant Blank. I'm a survey research fellow at the Oxford Internet Institute. My background is in sociology, and I work on what I think of as very classic sociological topics, um, inequalities on the internet, um, and the implications of these inequalities for people's lives. So thanks very much for joining me today, Grant. It might not immediately be obvious why the two of us should have much to discuss. The electric telegraph means of communication I study was developed 180 years ago. And although some of its key pioneers like Samuel Morse are still remembered, the technology itself has pretty much disappeared. Um, So the telegraph, telegrams, these all seem like relics of the past. And the internet, on the other hand, is the technology of the present and the future. But when I look at the terms in which the telegraph was described during the 19th century um, and the impact which contemporaries thought that this revolutionary new means of instantaneous communication was going to have on society. Um, It seems to me some things haven't changed. In a sense, the the hopes and the fears associated with modern communication seem at least remarkably constant. So to take one example, I have a quote here from the Imperial German Postmaster General to the German Parliament in the 1870s, and he said, Gentlemen, we have received this wonderful force of nature as a gift from the Creator, which rushes through entire sections of the earth in a second, and is essentially an annihilator of distance. Does that in some ways encapsulate the way a lot of people think about the internet today? That kind of techno-optimism is certainly a very common response to the internet. It uh, reflects, you can see that in many people's comments. Um, It's a bit more um, 1990s than it is um, 20-teens. The 1990s, everything seemed possible. Uh, The 20-teens now, we're seeing a bit more of a dystopian idea of the internet as a place where uh, foreign governments interfere with democracy and uh, people put up videos of them shooting um, innocent victims and other sorts of things where there's stalking. So the image of the internet as something very, uh, very strongly positive, an annihilator of distance, as you said, um, certainly still exists, but I think in recent years it's been kind of overshadowed. 
it's, it's interesting that you point out the kind of realisation that the internet also has its negative side. This was also something which isn't always realised, but people were also afraid of the possible consequences of telegraphic communication. One thing that they realised uh, was that not everybody had equal access to the telegraph. Whereas from the outset in countries like Britain, France and Germany, capital cities, centres of finance had been very quickly connected to this new network of communication. Other places, often rural areas, had been left out. Uh, and this was one of the concerns that became more prevalent in the later 19th century. Is that something that, that people are starting to recognise with the internet today? There's a very clear recognition of that sort of dynamic on the internet today. Uh, urban centers were connected, of course, first and very quickly when the internet became public in the 90s. Uh, there are serious concerns about the problems of small towns and particularly rural areas and the lack of internet connectivity there. Uh, this has a significant negative impact on their uh, commercial viability as a small town um, on the ability of people who live in rural areas to fully participate in modern society because they don't have access to, initially access to the internet at all, but then um, recently uh, they don't have access to broadband. Mm. Um, and since so much of the internet is visual um, and uh, requires megabytes to download individual pages in order to get all the graphical elements, um, that's a significant disadvantage for them. Yeah, so it's, it's not just being connected that matters, it's also the quality of your connection. Right, I think that's certainly one of the differences, I think, in between the telegraph is that the, the internet comes in different speeds. <laughs> um, yeah. And the British government, of course, has a very large, expensive project to extend fiber out into rural areas. Uh, at the moment, they're spending tens of millions of pounds on these projects. It's true that um, the Telegraph didn't require huge levels of bandwidth, but because of the uh, increasing volume of correspondence on the network, governments often had to lay more and more lines between major centres. So to a certain extent, there was a sort of two-speed society emerging in that if you were a small town outside Berlin, you were going to have to wait much longer before your message got transmitted uh, wherever to Hamburg or Frankfurt because there was so much uh, traffic from Berlin itself. Um, so the demands weren't as high. Um, that's also partly because of the kinds of uses the telegraph was being put to, but there were also issues of speed involved there. Mm. But I, you're right that I guess that there wasn't this same social engagement with the telegraph. It, it was for a very long time very much used by businessmen uh, or centres of finance or uh, members of the state administration or of government, whereas the internet today, I suppose, is a much broader appeal. Yes, it does. I mean, the internet started out, uh, in contrast to the telegraph, as an uh, academic exercise, um, initially funded by the military, and then later um, it spread through all of the academic environments um, and was not open to the public until the uh, early 90s. Um, at that point, it was adopted first by uh, large businesses, certainly, made the most profitable use of it. Um, but recently, the major use of the Internet has become 
uh, not so much uh, commercial uses as entertainment uses. Uh, this is particularly true when people are streaming uh, videos. So Netflix traffic occupies a major portion of the internet during peak viewing hours in the evenings in many countries. So the entertainment aspect of the internet uh, is, I think, a big difference between it and the uh, telegraph. I was wondering when you brought up the British government's plan to extend broadband to broader sections of the country, how these priorities change from country to country. So one thing that was noticeable with the telegraph is that whereas in Britain and, and the US, uh, or in Britain at least, until the telegraph network was nationalised in 1869, it was very much private companies that were establishing lines wherever they thought it might be most profitable. Uh, in France and Germany, it was the states that decided, often in a kind of consultation with chambers of commerce and representatives of business communities, but it was very much the state that got to decide where the network was built. But as a result, it also means that where there were inequalities, they could more easily be seen as sort of state-produced inequalities, uh, whereas in Britain, it could be blamed on the forces of the market. I think that particular story is very much also the story of the internet. It's something where um, in Britain and the US, the initial investments were all private. Um, initially, of course, the internet was always dial-up. Um, so anywhere, anyone who had a phone, which were pretty much ubiquitous in developing countries, uh, by the time the internet became public in the early 90s, um, the broadband investment initially was private um, because corporations needed bigger, um, greater bandwidth. Um, so the initial fiber was laid uh, just to on trunk lines between major interconnection points on the internet. And then businesses, local telecommunications companies started paying for local fiber. Certainly by the middle 90s you could see that. Now the problem is the they companies believe that they have run out of profitable places. And so a lot of extension to rural areas in Britain's being funded by the British government, by grants. Uh, the Cornwall broadband project, um, for example, was funded by an EU grant. Um, in the US, uh, there are various federal programs that support extending broadband to rural areas. Uh, so the rural areas are places where the companies at least claim they're not going to get their investment back, and so they won't invest without some sort of incentive. How does that affect the cost of both providing and accessing internet services? It will depend on how the ISP is set up. If it's a local village that has decided to bring in its own internet service, then they're required to build in uh, the cost to uh, be revenue neutral. So they're required to cover their costs. Um, if it's a larger corporation, um, one of the uh, regular telecommunications companies, in general it's worth saying that um, the British regulatory efforts on the internet have been much better than the American. The cost of, of internet access here is something like a third or a fifth of what it would cost in the U.S. 
uh, for the same level of service. And that's Ofcom. That's Ofcom mm -hmm. entirely and how well they've regulated things and the competition that they have built into their regulatory environment. Your comment on the rural communities that might want to connect to the network independently reminded me of these towns that in the 1850s and 60s uh, are petitioning the government across Germany to get access to the telegraph, but they're being told that their use simply wouldn't make it profitable. And so often it's local businessmen who band together and subscribe to the service and guarantee a kind of minimum level of income for the state. At the other end of the scale, when there are debates in the German parliament in the 1870s to try and reduce the costs of, of communication, particularly long distance communication, the government's response at times was to say that there was very little they could do because whereas the state controlled its own network when it came, for instance, to the transatlantic cable which had been laid in 1866, this was run by a private multinational corporation and so it seems as though some gains have been made from those debates in that we have new methods of regulating today but obviously issues keep re-emerging from the new demands placed on the technology. Now it's interesting your discussion of sometimes groups of business people would get together because certainly there that's a model that was used frequently with the telephone companies um, when the telephone was extended into many areas it was often extended where people would set up their own rural exchanges um, in small towns and rural areas. And um, the internet now in, there is a provision in British law and a number of uh, villages have taken advantage of this that villages can uh, set up a, uh, a small um, uh, not-for-profit entity that will then apply for government funding to bring broadband into the community um, and then they support it in the community. So there is a, a British government uh, initiative that supports that kind of bottom-up building of the internet. What do you think these, these kind of differences between urban and rural provisions of, of the internet, and what do you think that means for the big narratives that we apply to the internet, or in my case, the telegraph? I mean, would you argue that the internet is annihilating space? Yeah, one of the rules of sociology is that um, in any social group you can always find a social status hierarchy. And the big narratives are dominated by the people at the top of the status hierarchy, which means they're dominated by urban elites um, in general. Uh, so the rural stories, while they are recognized, they certainly don't dominate anyone's uh, understanding of the internet. Um, and the internet then is seen as a technology that has eliminated or reduced the effects of distance in many areas. It's interesting, it's something that global historians have begun to point out with the Telegraph, is that for a long time, as you say, this, this narrative of what the Telegraph was doing in the, well, particularly the late 19th century, once he started having cables across the globe, um, this narrative that the world was getting smaller uh, was very much representing the fact that, yes, it was getting smaller for all the people who could access it in uh, either important cities uh, across the globe. But actually there were vast areas of the world that had absolutely no connection uh, to this service. And even if they could access it, a lot of people who might have wanted to couldn't afford to. 
I think the internet is more ubiquitous than that. And of course, overlaid in this story of the contemporary internet is also the spread of things like mobile phones. Mm -hmm. And that's a separate story, but it is worth at least a sentence to say that, you know, mobile phones have spread far faster than any other technology ever, period. Um, but the story of the internet, uh, to go back to the, your main point, is in certain respects identical, but it's identical with a twist because it's not so much the geography that mattered in the way the internet is constructed, but rather what's happening is the internet remains dominated by many of the same elites who dominated the media before the internet. Mm -hmm. So if you look simply at websites that get lots of visitors, those are websites of major media corporations, mm -hmm. um, the BBC, the Daily Mail, and so on. Um, you know, you and I can write a blog, but who would read it? Mm -hmm. um, and this is everyone's fate. Um, we're not in a structural position in terms of having lacking organizational backing and lacking the sort of voice that a BBC correspondent has, for example, to make our um, voices heard, even if in some technical sense, yes, we have actually written something and it's online where anyone in some technical sense could view it. Um, but in reality, no one will view it. <laughs> so the replication of, and in fact, probably the reinforcement of the existing elites is in one respect, one of the stories of the internet. There are other power hierarchies here that are worth paying attention to as well. You know, we're uh, English speaking at the University of Oxford. Um, these all give us some big advantages. You know, I could write a blog post on the OII uh, website and uh, it goes out to uh, several tens of thousands of people uh, just because it's the OII and I have that link. Um, so that puts me in a privileged position in many respects compared to um, you know, an indigenous woman in Africa or uh, South America. What you were, it also reminded me of how uh, the Telegraph transformed news distribution in the 19th century is that part of the narrative, of course, is that news could get across the globe increasingly fast, um, that obviously there was, it was a kind of democratization of information distribution. But in many ways, that wasn't the actual result because of the needs to pay for the for transmitting news reports uh, and to collect as much information as possible very quickly led to these monopolies and you know, Reuters being established in Britain, Havas in France, Wolfs in Germany. And by the 1870s, actually, what initially was done for practical reasons um, resulted in literally a news cartel um, which began to raise questions as to how independent news really was. Yeah, technologies change cost structures and that changes the way in which, in what sort of organizations can be economically sustained. So the sort of classic media, newspaper, radio, television of the mass media era has been seriously challenged. Uh, some organizations have made, appear to be making a transition to the internet very successfully. Um, you can look at companies like the New York Times, which has a million um, online subscribers, or The Economist. Uh, other organizations are in serious trouble. Many local newspapers, for mm -hmm. example, 
have had uh, lost a lot of their financial s support. Uh, and that's been a very serious problem for them. And many other media have had to rethink their business model. Um, where this will all shake out is not clear, but we certainly will see some uh, high-profile victims <laughs> of mm -hmm. the Internet era. And we've seen some of them already in uh, newspapers in the United States. What do you think some of the best strategies are to negotiate these different levels at which um, the internet is being developed? When I think of the Telegraph, I think about the International Telegraph Union, which was established in 1865. It was one of the first major international organizations established specifically to address this question of regulating communication across national borders. Um, eventually they were forced to actually take into account the fact that some of the players involved were private corporations and not all state administrations. Obviously that's changed a lot now, but there are still issues in terms of how we negotiate the different levels of administration or financing of the internet. Right. That's, a, that's a, of course, a very current issue right now, the question of to what extent does, uh, can French citizens access content on the internet, for example, um, and how does, uh, what content can they access? Uh, to what extent do uh, large multinational media corporations pay attention to uh, national laws? Um, and those, are, those, those issues are certainly not settled by any means uh, at the moment. There's currently a move to regulate the large corporations much more strongly than they have in the past. Um, there's a question of whether uh, large companies like um, Facebook should in fact not be public utilities. One can debate whether uh, a bureaucratic government agency would be more responsive than a private company, but nonetheless it's certainly an alternative mode of organizing a multinational media company. So the regulatory aspect is certainly there, and the GDPR is one attempt to try to regulate that. Uh, the U.S. has been much more light-touch regulation um, for a variety of reasons. Um, I think many of them historical reasons, the uh, particular political ideology of letting corporations do this. It's a complicated topic. One interesting parallel is that from an early stage because of the very fact that telegraph networks were crossing borders you had very practical questions that had to be solved such as well what language do we communicate in which meant that when the international telegraph union was set up they had to decide on a, a list of acceptable languages to telegraph in you could put it within the larger context of imperialism and the fact that inadvertently perhaps the further telegraph lines were being spread out across the globe the further these recognized and obviously initially European languages were being institutionalized and given a practical legitimacy um, so I guess there as well even in just the kind of administrative structures built around communications networks you've got other power dynamics at play uh, which I would assume is also the case for the internet. Well, it's not so much a regulatory issue as just that um, uh, if you want to communicate with someone in another language, the common li you're likely to have English as your common language. 
Mm. Uh, and so that internet has certainly fostered the spread of English. Um, until recently, it was quite difficult to write in other languages on the internet. That has largely been removed now, but still the problem is if you want to communicate with someone else, um, you have to find a common language, and most likely your common language is going to be English um, if you're from different uh, countries, even if neither of you are native English speakers. Um, that's not so much regulatory um, as it is simply a convenience for users, um, which uh, inadvertently or promotes the, the continued uh, spread of English. I find this fascinating, this constant tension uh, when it comes to networks in general between the democratizing influence and actually the ways in which it reinforces existing structures. So on the one hand, it's certainly true that more people now than ever can communicate in a growing number of languages on the internet. But for the reasons you pointed out earlier, not everybody has the same presence uh, on the internet itself. And so it's something that I certainly think was true of the Telegraph and I guess is perhaps also just the inherent nature of how networks work, that on, they include and exclude and then once they do include people, you have different hierarchies or qualities of access within the network itself. In that sense, the internet is, is very similar to the way the Telegraph worked. Right, certainly the a lot of the internet is dominated by many of the same sort of transnational globalized elites that would have dominated early um, work with the ITU, for example, in setting up uh, national standards because of the, the need for standards was, uh, was obvious to people who had to communicate across borders um, to make that communication fluid and smooth and easy and cheap. Um, that had to make things standardized. And that continues actually to be a major motivation behind standard setting bodies, of which there are a large number of them connected to the internet in various ways, um, including the body that defines things like HTML and even lower level protocols on the internet. Um, so you see the sort of effect of, um, of these high level elites um, permeating down to technical levels in many ways uh, in a very similar pattern to the way you just described, I think, working um, with the telegraph. I think one of the things that you can see here, and this is a parallel, I think, to the one of the effects of the telegraph, is the telegraph was a major component in the first wave of globalization in the late 1800s. The sort of cheap communication made it possible to um, build and staff factories at long distances to control large multinational corporations for the first time. And I don't think it would have been anywhere near as easy um, without a telegraph. Similarly, the internet underlies the wave of globalization we saw um, starting in the 80s and 90s. Um, now, there are other communication technologies going on there as well that are supporting that but the fact that you can basically for free communicate anywhere in the world um, for an unlimited length of time um, is an enormously um, empowering thing for a business that's trying to control uh, a number of subsidiaries in a complex global environment. 
what you say is absolutely right. Uh, when this first wave of globalization was taking place in the 1870s and the German parliament was debating certain reforms to uh, the cost of telegraphing, uh, essentially it, it became uh, a debate between those who were defending very long distance communication who were explicitly uh, or singled out as business interests um, and certain deputies were standing up explicitly to defend what they call the interests of the locality, small enterprises, agriculture. There was a sense that this abstract global space that was becoming more and more valued ideologically was to the detriment of local space and these kind of more what we might call more organic um, relations. Um, so I suppose that these two processes are happening at the same time and it's different people benefiting from they are. different layers of communication. Yeah, and even uh, smaller communities benefit. I know a number of uh, villages that communicate primarily over a local Facebook group. And similarly, their neighborhoods that have their own Facebook group or their own, uh, their own website. And uh, that that's, that's a way in which uh, people learn about neighborhood news and information and so on and can get advice on childcare and plumbing and um, so the, the, the benefits are quite widespread in certain respects um, and it's a very complex thing to disentangle. What's interesting is that the Telegraph emerges around about the same time as um, uh, the disciplines of sociology and uh, a sociological interest in statistics, for instance. Um, in 1857, I think, is one of the first German works on uh, the telegraph as a means of communication and what potential impact it might have on society. Um, and at the time, this economist called Karl Knies um, described the telegraph as the nerves of the nation and the, the whole national body was going to be able to communicate um, simultaneously through the impulses of the, of the telegraph network. Um, so, and people start to talk about networks in that sense because of course there are not only telegraph networks but railway networks. Um, the very concept of being a networked society emerges not coincidentally alongside these technologies. Um, so in a sense, even the kind of interests that we have now and, and the ability we have now to uh, study network communication in the age of the Internet also has this longer history linked to the first modern means of networked communication. Of course, people have uh, surrounding the Internet have always had a sense that this was a uh, historically important moment and we need to record it. And so there were deliberate efforts to record a lot of the details of the early uh, development of the Internet. And uh, research in the Internet starts almost immediately um, as soon as academic networks are set up. Uh, the early work there on, um, on those academic networks, ARPANET um, and so on, uh, starts back in the 1980s. Um, by the 1990s, when the public internet becomes available, again, you have a lot of very early research as soon as data is available. Um, 
So, uh, and it's, it's continued in a variety of ways. Um, you know, the World Internet Project, the Oxford Internet Survey, um, the uh, various other uh, national surveys. Ironically, we should have amazing records on the Telegraph because when primarily for sort of policing and security reasons in the 1850s, the German, German states telegraph offices were legally required to make a copy of every telegram that was sent. Um, so we should have these huge records of every single telegram that was sent. But then, of course, within five or six years, they realized that the quantity or the volume of material they were accumulating was untenable. And so they make the decision to burn anything that's sort of more than two years old or something like that. Um, so we should have great data, but we don't. Well, and I mean, the problem with data about the internet is um, that it's always partial, um, all the versions of it, that, um, that a lot of it's controlled by private companies. The public sort of data is, is uh, it depends on how you measure things and exactly what you're measuring. And there are a lot of uh, fairly, um, difficult problems in using um, many kinds of internet data. Um, all the various media are dominated by small numbers of individuals. Um, you know, Twitter, which I know best, uh, something like 10% of the um, Twitter users generate 90% of the tweets. Um, Twitter data, you have a very odd collection of data. Um, and that permeates all of the uh, other um, internet-related media as well. So are there some ways in which you think comparing older technology, network technologies like the telegraph can inform the way we think about the internet today or in, uh, network technologies today? What I've learned about this has been the, the way in which the internet does parallel in many respects the telegraph. I, it was absolutely fascinating to read about how, well, yeah, the telegraph wires went to the main office, but then they relied on some other medium to get transmitted, um, you know, often mail or messengers, and often with very large delays to actual other offices. It was a, a quite an illuminating way in w to think about the ways in which uh, a technology speeds up uh, certain transactions but doesn't speed up others. And I think that particular idea applies very well to the internet and has probably not been exploited as much as it could be. I think the internet has, has suffered from some of the same problems that Telegraph has in the sense that people say, oh, the internet speeds up everything, makes communication so much easier. And it does as long as you're connected to the internet, as long as you have a broadband connection to the internet, you know, and so on. Mm. Um, well, it's certainly been a very productive conversation for me in the sense that, first of all, the ways in which people are now able to actually question the broad narratives that we have the internet should certainly help us rethink some of the narratives we have about past technologies. Um, so it's not just about seeing the parallels, but also seeing the ways in which past technologies have created some of the inequalities that people are observing today. Uh, but also because of the, the kind of richness of the research that can be done today because of data and, you know, keeping in mind all the caveats that you've pointed out, the difference between different media and who's using what. Um, 
it can actually point in certain directions. Things that can be properly analysed today make you realise that they were not only there in the past, but perhaps had their origins in the past. And so for me, it's very much about this mutually enriching research. So I suppose we could talk for hours. But thank you very much for oh, this discussing. Oh, this is very interesting. It's been a delightful conversation. It's been great. Good.